Anyway, we, we started the, the Jesus series last week, and uh, let, let, me, let me go straight in. And this is the text that we, we've started with. So let me read it again. It's out of 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3 to, and, and all the way through to 4. It says, I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's clever lies, your thoughts may be corrupted, and you may lose your single-hearted devotion and pure love for Christ. For you seem to gladly tolerate anyone who comes to you preaching a pseudo-Jesus, not the Jesus that we have preached to you. You have accepted a spirit and a gospel that is false rather than the spirit and gospel you once embraced. How tolerant you are and how you have become of these imposters. And what I shared last week was just how in the world today, Jesus, and I don't know if you saw even again on social media, is uh, this bus that said that Jesus isn't a swear word, he's, he's Lord. And Jesus has become a swear word to some. Jesus has become something that he isn't to many others. And especially within the context of Christendom, is we've made Jesus in our image rather than us being made in his image. And so we, we looked at two things. Uh, Ian, I don't know if you're fiddling there, but she's not working. Uh, there we go. Is... Uh, I demonstrated to you, and without going through it, if you want to go and, and hear the details, go to the podcast. I demonstrated to you that Jesus' life, his death and his resurrection is the most attested historical account or event that ever, ever happened. So if you want to believe in Caesar, if you want to believe in Alexander the Great, they are nowhere near in terms of the ancient writings attested in terms of what they did, their lives and everything else. Yet everyone believes that without a shadow of a doubt. But when it comes to Jesus, people doubt and people make up their own things as far as what they want to believe. And so both in integrity and authenticity, those manuscripts, the Bible itself, um, all the writings around that time attest to Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. The one thing we wanted to say was that, that faith is not faith unless there is an object of faith. What do I mean? Well, if I say you have faith in Babala Babala Blue, Who's Bubbla Bubbla Blue? You don't know who Bubbla Bubbla Blue is, so how can you have faith in Bubbla Bubbla Blue? Sounds like a great religion to start, but the point is, is you have to have an object in order to have faith, and the object in our case is Jesus. And knowledge, there has to be a knowledge component to our faith. Faith can't just be this kind of like wishful thinking because otherwise it just becomes this like uh, totally blind faith. No, we have to have a knowledgeable component to our faith, otherwise it can just turn into this fantasy. We need the facts. We need to do the historical count. Many of us as Christians have just believed because our parents believe and have taught us, but have we done our own historical research into the historical Jesus and what he did? So I found this, it was actually from a Ravi Zechariah talk, but how is this? It's a little anecdote about a man who's been interviewed for a young junior pastor position. And uh, the senior pastor asked him about his life and, you know, all of his upbringing and how he went about it and how he's landed up kind of wanting to go into ministry. And finally he says to him, you know, listen, Jack, um, I'd really like to hear what, you know, what do you know and understand about the story of the Good Samaritan? So young Jack says, no problem, I'll, I'll, I'll recount it for you. And so he starts to recount it. And let me put on my eyes so I can read it properly. Once there was a man traveling to Jerusalem from Jericho, and he fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked him. And as he went on his way, he did not have the money, but he was lucky enough to meet the Queen of Sheba, 
And she gave him a thousand talents and put him in a chariot, which he drove furiously. And when he was driving under this big juniper tree, his hair got caught there. And he hung there for many days. But the ravens brought him food to eat and water to drink. And he had 5,000 loaves of bread and two fishes. And one night while he was hanging there, his wife Delilah came and cut his hair and he dropped and fell on the stony ground. But he got up and he went on his way, and he, but it began to rain. And it rained for 40 days and for 40 nights. And he hid himself in a cave and he lived off locusts and honey. Then he went on and he met a servant who said, come and have supper in my house. And the good Samaritan said, no, I've married a wife and I cannot go. And the servant went into the highways and the hedges and compelled him to come in. So he came in, and after he finished eating supper, he went down to Jericho. And when he got there, he looked, and he saw Queen Jezebel. And she was sitting in a window high above him, and she laughed at him. So he said to them, throw her down. And so they threw her down. And then he said to her, throw her down again. So they threw her down 70 times 7. <laughs> and of the fragments that remained, they picked up 12 baskets full, besides the women and children. And they said, blessed be the peacemakers, P-I-E-C-E, makers, and those, and whose wife do you think she will be on Judgment Day? Over the top, yes. But I guarantee you, each one of us have come across a person, or even in our own lives, where we recite some of this junk, because we don't know our Bibles. We don't know the Jesus of the Bible. We don't know the true Jesus. And so it's important for us to understand that. Now, the question is, why do we choose Jesus? Lots of religions in this world, lots of different ways to live out our life. Why choose Jesus? You know, Jesus said to us, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except for me. If you really know me, you will know the Father as well. And from now on, you know him because you've seen me. So if we want to know God, if we want to know all about who God is, then we need to know who the Jesus of the Bible is because then we get to know who God is. And so my question along this is truth. How can we know that Jesus is the truth? Why is Jesus truth above all other religions? I mean, don't all other religions lead to God? Not what other religions say, do they? But before we get there, I'm going to do an historical lesson. So bear with me. For those of you who hated history, I'm sorry if it's a Mufasa moment, but bear with me as we go. So, here's the epochs of time, 2000 BC to our 2000 years that we've had here on earth. And what you'll see behind me is that you have this age of mythology, around about 1800 BC through to about 300 BC, where this was characterized by just this diverse culture of people. And what was interesting was, there was they never criticized and they never questioned these um, amazing events that happened. And so they didn't have to explain the phenomena that would happen around them. And they believed in the mythology that they were taught. And then we had this natural philosophers stroke pre-Socrates era between 600 BC and 370 BC. And what we see there is just how philosophy started to change, and there came this, this critical emphasis on rationalization and thinking. And then we have the big three Greek philosophers. Who knows the big three? Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. No, sorry. <laughs> Socrates. Okay, Aristotle and okay, Plato. You can add uh, 
Pythagoras in there if you would like. But the big three, hey? Yeah, the Greeks. So then you land up with the, the Hellenism era, which happens between 323 BC and 420 AD. Isn't it interesting that the Greek language was used to propagate the gospel? Isn't it interesting that in, in Ephesians chapter 1, it says, when the times had reached their fulfillment, Jesus came. It was all set at that moment that the Greek language on one level, obviously it's multifaceted, but on one level, the Greek language called Koine Greek was the language of the, uh, become a common language in the streets, and they were able to propagate the gospel freely. I'll leave that with you, not in my notes, but for free this morning. Then we have the medieval, the, sorry, the, Hellenism, the Hellenism age was when it was marked by actually a decline in Greek culture and the fusion of cultures and beliefs. And uh, there was this kind of multitude of kingdoms that developed. And then the medieval age was actually this emphasis on Christian theology. And some of it was, was selected Greek thought and philosophy. And then the Re Renaissance was this fact that there was a rebirth of the Hellenistic age. And there was this rapid you know, cultural development and religious and political evolution. And things started to move really quickly. And then we have the scientific revolution between about 1543 to 1727, where we see this period where there's a massive emphasis on intellectualism and rationalism and empiricism. And uh, they start to discover stuff and this, this induction starts to happen. And then the, the Baruch period, which is kind of in, in that process, is we start to see the, the arts starting to come out. And then the age of enlightenment, the age of reason, comes into play. And people start to have this intellectual and philosophical understanding, and those ideas dominated our world system. And then the romanticism, the arts, and the, the, the literacy, and the music, and again, intellectualism coming into play. And then we land up in our modern world today. And the modern world, I would say, is over the last, call it, 120 years. And so what happened in our modern day was two things. Is one, it started off with modernism. And I'll explain to you what that means. And we've moved into a place of postmodernism, and we're kind of flirting with a whole bunch of we don't knows at the moment. But modernism, basically this started with René Descartes, which was a 17th century French philosopher. And his whole idea was to pursue certainty. He was the one who says, I think, therefore I am. And he displaced God as the starting point of knowledge. And he replaced it with the individual because the individual, he can know and he can know for certainty who he is and he can navigate his uh, journey for himself. He doesn't need God. And so modernism puts all of this stuff into rationalism, empirical evidence. In other words, we need scientific evidence to prove why something exists. Otherwise, it doesn't exist. So miracles disappear. So when the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, no, it was a drought at that time. And uh, it was only ankle-deep in knee-deep water. And that's how the Israelites were able to navigate across the Red Sea quite easily. I suppose what they haven't answered is then the bigger miracle was a whole Egyptian army dying in ankle-deep, knee-deep water. But we won't go there. But the point is, is it quenches our idea or our longing for something outside of ourselves or for the divine. Because we know we are the start of everything. Me as the individual, it's me, myself, and I. I don't need anything outside of who I am. And so my yearning for God, my yearning for something beyond me, my creator, is dwindled because I am God. So then we move into the postmodern era. And it's actually a result of modernism. Because what modernism did was it, it put all these things into play. It sets up 
uh, people who were the leaders, who were the ones who had all that knowledge. And so we land up with people like Hitler, who influenced the whole nation and influenced the whole world. And obviously we know not really positively. So we don't want authority anymore. So we're going to become anti-authority, anti-establishment. We see after the Second World War, we see the 60s and the flower children, and everything's about sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and everything goes. And actually, what starts to happen is we land up in this place where we start to question propositional truth. We start to question verbal authority, and we don't want authority because we don't want the same thing to happen like what happened with Hitler. And that starts to invade every aspect of our lives, including the church. So we don't want leaders. We all lead. We don't have submission because, no, that, that, that's bad. And so in the postmodern thing, what happens is authority is no longer with the author, but with the reader. So when I take my Bible out, the Bible isn't the authority which was written by the Holy Spirit or written by men through the Holy Spirit, but actually I become the authority and I decide how to interpret it because I'm the one in authority. So absolute truth becomes relative. Now, I don't know about you, but... When I go to a doctor, I don't want a postmodernist. If I'm in an airplane and there's a pilot flying, I don't want a postmodernist where truth is relative. Or as a musician would say, I don't want somebody to get up here and play music because they decide on how the music should be. No, they're principles of music. And if you violate those principles, what comes out is not helpful. And I'm not talking about things like jazz, but where they're taking principles and, and making something like amazing come out of it. I'm talking about violating principles because everything is relative and truth is relative. So how would, how would I explain postmodernism? Well, let me give you an example, and I'll accredit this again to Ravi Zacharias, this amazing apologist that is still alive and lives on this planet. And he says, it's like two Australian sailors that have been on the ship for a number of weeks, and they've... They've navigated with the ship, and they've arrived at, uh, in London. And they think, well, let's go and get a, a beer at the local London pub. And, and as you would, you, would, you would know or expect, is, uh, sailors have been on the sea are now going to indulge somewhat in uh, the, the local brew, brew. So they go off, and they, they, they have way too many ales and uh, find themselves in a place that they're not quite thinking as clearly as they would have liked. And so now they're trying to find their way back to the port and find their way back to their ship, and they're struggling to, to find the way back. And they bump into this highly decorated naval officer, and uh, one of the, and I'm going to try my best Australian accent, we've got some Australians here this morning, is, uh, hey, Bruce, do you know where we are? To which the naval officer got highly offended and looked at them and says, do you know who I am? So the other Australian <laughs> sailor looks at his mate and he says, oh my God, we're in trouble. He says, we don't know where we are and this bloke doesn't know who he is. <laughs> That's pretty much a definition of postmodernism. We don't know who we are. In this day and age, we don't know who we are. And I'm going to show you that we only know who we are when we know whose we are. So postmodernism was actually in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, the serpent arrives and says, did God really say? In our lives, what happens is, is many of us are in circumstances now, and the promises of God have been spoken over us, and we go, did God really say? 
See, Adam and Eve had one absolute. Do not eat of the fruits of that tree, the one that is of the knowledge of good and evil. And everybody thinks, oh, hold on a second, that was the whole point, that they wanted to gain knowledge in order to be like God, which obviously is a big point. But you know what? It wasn't about trying to know truth, trying to know the knowledge of good and evil. It was actually to redefine it. And humanity is trying to, has tried to redefine truth from that moment onwards. So whose truth is truth? Does my truth trump Louise's truth, Grant's truth? So, so where is there an absolute that we can hold on to and say that is truth? <laughs> I, I would submit to you that the, the context of our lives, the world that we live in, which has gone crazy, and we must pray for Zimbabwe before we leave here this morning, America, Brexit, you name it, all of these things, I would submit to you is not a decline in economics, it's a decline in morality because we no longer have absolute truth. We teach relative truth in our varsities, and then what happens is we have things like Enron and Steinhoff and all of these other things where men and women go, well, there's relative truth. Money doesn't have any kind of... Uh, value to it or worth to it. So I'm going to loan money and never, never actually anticipate me giving it back to you because it's relative truth. That's not wrong. I'm okay with that. But then when we catch those people, we put them in jail. So, so where does the truth come from? Why is that wrong? And it's amazing those who are the ones who got the relative truth will be the first to say that's wrong. No, there is an absolute truth. There is a God who's put truth into play. There is one who is the truth, and his name is Jesus. So, if money doesn't have a point of reference, it has absolutely no worth. Because if I showed you a million-dollar bill that's in my pocket right now, what do you think? What happens if it's a Zimbabwean dollar? It's worth nothing. So unless I've got a point of reference to something, it's worth absolutely nothing. It's the same thing with truth. So my friend, who I've already quoted a few times, says this. He says, We now learn to listen with our eyes and think with our feelings. We are meant to see through the eye with the conscience. And when we start seeing with the eye devoid of the conscience, all kinds of belief can invade your imagination. And Jesus said to us, your eyes are lamp to your body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is unhealthy, your body is full of darkness. See, when we start to move away from truth and we start to move towards the things that are untruth and are full of lies, then what starts to happen is darkness starts up inside and it becomes really dark. So where are you right now? When Adam and Eve sinned, they went and they hid because they were fearful. Why? Because it had become dark inside. What do we allow in our eyes, our eye gates, into our soul that makes our lives dark? What are we looking at? What are we beholding? Satan tried that with Jesus, didn't he? All of this is yours, Jesus. Just bow down and serve me and worship me. And Jesus goes, foot sack, using that great Greek term. Now, I serve the one and true God, and I will worship him and him alone. And from that... Everything else comes from that. That is where our absolute truth is, not in what Satan was offering Jesus. But what about the other religions? What about Buddhism and 
Hinduism and what about Islam? What about these things? Because they're not bad ways to live. When you, when you look at how, they, how they, they, they meet it out, they're really not bad ways to live. Yes, we've got the militant kind of crazy dumbasses who do stupid things. But we've got the same thing in Christianity, don't we? So if we move away from all the militant stuff and we look at the stuff, so someone like a, a John Hick, who's a theologian, and not one that I would follow, but says the world's religions are just different culturally conditioned responses to the ultimate real. So world religions express themselves differently. They should be respected and none should claim superiority. Hick believes that all religions are capable of bringing salvation and freedom that is evidenced by the moral fruits that they produce by those religions. Example, Mahatma Gandhi, the Dalai Lama, and so on. So, so what, what, what about many of you have heard the, 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 uh, the picture of, or the story, and it, it's actually, it came out of India, where the, one of the kings of India got six blind men together, and he said, go at different places alongside a, an elephant and tell me what you feel and what you see and describe it for me. And as you can see behind me is a picture of that. And so one guy goes behind the tail and he goes, gee whiz, no, this is a rope. The other guy goes to the leg and feels it and goes, no, this is a pillar. One's on the side and says, this is a wall. The other one goes to the tusk and says, this is a spear. The other one goes to the ear and goes, oh my word, a, this is a fan, you know, those big kind of fans that kind of blow air on the king. Everyone has a different perspective, but it's the same thing. It's the same religion. All roads lead to Rome. But Jesus just told us, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So is Jesus lying? Let's keep going. So let's have a quick look at some of the, the major religions. I'm not going to all of them. But the Jewish Orthodox, they believe in one God, Yahweh, which we know of. But actually what's interesting is I learned some stuff in my research is that as much as they believe that Jesus, or they just believe Jesus was a good ethical teacher, but he wasn't the Messiah because the Messiah was somebody who was going to come and actually help them break, break away from oppression. He was the one who was going to come deliver them, not deal with their personal sin. Interesting, isn't it? And he didn't bring lasting peace to Israel, so he wasn't the Messiah. So again, where's our focus? And yet when you read the Old Testament, us as Christians, we go, guys, can't you see this? <laughs> can't you see who Jesus is? He has portrayed all of, Jesus is in all that Old Testament scripture, and he's become man to, to deal with this stuff. So man is not born sinful or good. He decides and makes out, in terms of his life, his moral choices. He's accountable to himself, but really he can just deal with his own salvation. How? By committing himself to the one true God and live morally. Just every time I show salvation, make a note of how we attain salvation in these religions. What about Buddhists? Well, they deny the existence of a personal God. So Jesus was a good teacher, but not as good as Buddha. Um, anything which hinders man's progress is considered sin, and he's responsible for his own sin. And so how does he deal with this? Well, through self-effort. Hindus kind of have a similar thing with Buddhists to some extent, but Brahm is this formless, abstract, eternal uh, being without attributes, but he takes his form in a kind of a trinitarian form, but he also forms in millions of different forms as a god or lesser gods. And Jesus was uh, just simply one of the many incarnations, but he was not the son of God. So he certainly wasn't divine. He certainly didn't come and die for man's sins. 
Good and evil are relative terms. <laughs> Interesting. Whatever helps is good. Whatever hinders is evil. And man will stumble and he'll, he'll try and strive and he'll strive to do that. But don't worry. If you mess up, you just get another chance and you get reincarnated. Salvation. Well, man is justified through his devotion, through his meditation, and doing good works and having self-control. Have you noticed the thread here? Let's have a quick look at Islam. There's no other God but Allah. He's the true God. So Jesus was a man equal to Noah, Abraham, and the likes. He was nothing really special about him, and he didn't die for humanity's sin. In fact, he didn't even die on the cross. That was Judas who died on the cross. Sin is a failure to do Allah's will and failure to do one's religious duties as outlined by the five pillars of Islam. And lastly, again, salvation. How do we earn salvation? Well, man earns his salvation and pays for his own sins. Why do you think it's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news? Because I don't know about you, ladies and gents, but I know within myself I am incapable of doing what those four religions require of me. Totally incapable. Maybe you're a better person than I am, and you probably are. But even in your best, best efforts, you could be Mother Teresa. Your righteous acts are like filthy rags before our Father. Your best acts, the best that you can be, is like a filthy rag before God. And yet we've got other religions that say, you can do it. You can be the best that you can be. You can raise yourself above it. You can be self-controlled. You, 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 you. Again, everything's about the salvation that comes from within. And the gospel, the news that's too good to be true, the good news is that I rely on what Jesus has done, not what I can do. And I simply believe in what he done. And that's why it's the scandal of the gospel. It is the news that's too good to be true. Because I simply believe, based on empirical evidence of who Jesus is, what he did, how he lived his life, how he died, and how he was resurrected. And because of my faith in him, I receive a salvation. And guess what? I don't have to perform to keep it either. But hopefully we're not like that, where we go, hey, I've got the ticket to heaven, I'll just do what I want. No, we are saved for works, those good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. So what is truth? Yeah, and I'm stuck again. What is truth? I'm glad you asked that question. So Blaise Pascal, 1600 theologian, said, truth is so obscure in these times, because you can imagine, 300, was it, 400 years ago, says, truth is so obscure in our times and falsehood so established that unless we love the truth, we cannot know it. Jesus said it somewhat differently. He said, ask, well, again. Ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it'll be opened to you. For whoever asks receives, whoever seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be open. So if I try and define truth, this is what truth is. It's a belief or a story or an ideal or a statement that matches up with reality and corresponds to the way things really are. What is true has to be lived out practically and consistently. Otherwise, it's not truth. There's a mismatch. So if I say to you, the moon is actually just cheese. Is that truth? No, because it doesn't match up with reality. But there are people who will say that it's, how about the fact that people won't believe something even though it is true. So people will say, the earth is flat. 
even though they are, it's crazy that people still believe that, but there were people that believed the earth was flat when it wasn't. So truth isn't about something that you believe is happening. Truth will still be truth, whether you believe it's truth or not. Gravity is truth. Try and jump off this building and fly. Truth, I think, will prevail. And you know what? The other thing about truth is that um, truth is not believing in whatever works for me is truth. Because if I go to the North Pole, the temperature there, there's a truth to the temperature, but it doesn't help me. So it's not about what works for me and what doesn't work for me. It's still cold, freezing cold in North Pole. It's true. It doesn't work for you, though, but it's true. There's a place called hell. It doesn't work for me, but it's true. I'm sure it doesn't work for you either. So another quote from a well-known theologian of our time, Kostenberger, says, The very notion of truth has largely become a causality of postmodern thought and discourse. Truth is no longer the truth in Jesus' terms, who claim to be the truth. Rather, it is conceived as your truth or my truth. That is different yet equal legitimate ways of perceiving truth. Hence, truth is simply one preferred culturally conditioned, socially constructed version of reality. But Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So how do we know that Jesus was the truth? Because he demonstrated how to live out as a human in his relationship with God while he was here. He died for our sins and was resurrected, which we proved last week. So he demonstrated everything in terms of reality and consistency about how we should be and who we are. And he speaks authoritatively to every single age and culture across those epochs of time. And he does it with confidence. He proved he was the truth simply by the fact that he rose from the dead. So if Jesus is this unique revelation of who God is, if you see me, you see the Father, then I think it would be really helpful that we follow his example and do what he does. And say what he says. Otherwise, we land up with this, you know what, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I also believe in reincarnation. And we saw by my intro and my anecdotes that I shared. Here's the thing about Christianity. It's not a set of doctrines, ladies and gents. It's not about taking your Bible and setting up some kind of dogma and getting into systematic theology and, and teaching people on systematic theology. Those are not bad things. But if there's no relationship those doctrines fall into absolutely nothing. See, we, if we lose the principle of a father who wants to have relationship with his sons and daughters, and he's brought us back into relationship so that we can walk with him into eternity, then actually we miss out on the heart of our Christian faith. Of course, doctrines flow from that, but they should never be preeminent. Our relationship with God is. Because we're putting our trust in a person, not in a principle. Because that person is truth. And from that truth, those principles. But if we put in our trust in a principle that may or may not be true, we're lost from the beginning. So let me ask you this question and coming to land. What is worth dying for? Just stop and think for a moment because it can roll off your lips. What is worth dying for? But let me ask the other question. What is worth living for? See, if we set these dogma and these doctrines and that's the way, then we have to agree or disagree. And if we disagree, we part ways. 
But if we've got the truth who is Jesus and he's our focus, then we can live with disagreement. And I wanted to go into the whole thing of tolerance this morning, but there's not enough time. I'm going to do it next week or the week after or the week after that, whenever I preach again. But what we do is if we don't have that in place, then we adapt our set of beliefs to what we want. Talk to Benjamin Franklin, cutting out verses in the Bible because he didn't like them. Make your own Bible. Make your own way. But then we lose Jesus. We lose our way. We lose the truth, and we lose the abundant life that he has for us. But the thing is, when we know Jesus, the true Jesus, then when someone says, oh, you know, Jesus said this, you go, oh, come on, baby. That's not what Jesus said. No, Jesus didn't do this. No, no, Jesus did do that. Um, I gave this example, and I think it's worth giving again. I know many will go, oh, no, I don't do that. I, I know my Bible. And I, no, well, how did apartheid come into South Africa? Through the church. Through people who didn't know the true Jesus. The one who broke down the walls of hostility, says in Ephesians. And what do we do as the church? We just build them up. Why? Because we didn't know the true Jesus and what he had done. See, the, the problem with humanity is when we are given choice, often what we do is we elevate ourselves and we diminish our personal responsibility. We look across the world today. No one wants to take responsibility for their actions, but they want to elevate themselves to position of prominence and authority. And so then what happens is, is we have this greater freedom to call things good that the actual the Bible says are sinful. And we put ourselves in charge of our own destiny, which, as we know, that doesn't end up well, does it? And we know in our children, I want what I want, and I want it now. Freddie Mercury, right there. An amazing musician. And if you haven't seen Rhapsody, go see it. It's a phenomenal movie. that opens your eyes up to the life that that guy led, despite the gifting and the beauty. Imagine if that was submitted into God, and yet died at 45 years old. So humanity... Doesn't need more self-centeredness, ladies and gents. We, we need God-centeredness. And his name is Jesus, the truth, way, and life. And I want to leave you with one last question. One last question. Jesus was with his disciples one day, just come from Caesarea Philippi. And he's sitting with his disciples, and he says, who do the people say the Son of Man is, speaking of himself? And they said, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, some say one of the prophets but then he says to them, who do you say I am? So let me leave you with that question. Who do you say I am? You see, only when you truly answer that can you truly know who you are. And that's why the world's so confused. We don't know who we are because we don't know whose we are. And when we answer that question of the real Jesus and we follow him and we have our faith in him, you know what happens? Is our journey starts to get momentum into what God has for us because we seek him out. We knock and we keep on knocking and we find our way. We find the truth and we find the abundant life that's on offer for us here and now, not just in eternity. So I'm going to finish off this morning knowing that many of us are in circumstances. And what's interesting is what came through Dale's new song this morning, what came through in our prayer meeting out of Corinthians, what was it, Charms 1 or 2? 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20, where it talks about the yes and the amens and the promises of God, is that many of us, and I'm right there, are struggling with, God, you said, and yet when I look around, I'm not seeing what you said. It hasn't come to fruition. I feel like um, 
Mary and um, Martha waiting for Jesus to come back because my best friend Lazarus is sick and won't you come and heal him? And Jesus is just not coming. God, you've spoken promises over this property. You've spoken these things. You've spoken promises over my life and yet I'm standing here and the circumstances are saying something completely different. Let me introduce you to a young lady if you haven't really been introduced to her. Her name is Kiara Mungavin. She lives in Durban. Her parents are Richard and um, Jackie Mungavin. They're not close friends of ours, but we know them well. From the circles we've been in, they lead a church called Anthem Church in Durban. On the 24th of December, Jackie and Kiara are driving in the car and a motorcyclist T-bones them. How all of the details unfold, I don't know. Whether the motorcyclist with his crash helmet went through the window or whether the, the motorbike hit her, that's what it did to her brain, her head. That's the x-ray. Had an operation, pulled bone fragments out of her brain, took the whole side of her head off because the brain was swelling. Her skull is still sitting in her abdomen to preserve it. They have to have another operation one day to put it back on. But on the 24th, 25th of December, Richard's birthday is on the 25th. You can imagine the crazy thing. They had their Christmas tree with their presents ready to give the kids. And that was all delayed because of this tragedy that happened. She's a phenomenal ballerina, has performed at the, whatever they call it, the Durban Civic, 14 years old, beautiful young lady, her life now in tatters and the family traumatized by the impending death or at least vegetative state of their daughter. We're following this on Facebook and it's become quite a viral thing. It's been on ETV, News 24, etc. The doctors are saying, sorry, at one stage, I think on the 26th or 27th, they said, we don't know that her brainstem has enough life in it to sustain life going forward. Imagine as parents taking your, the siblings of one of your kids into a room to say goodbye to your, their sister. That's what they did. But do you know what they did? They said, God, we're not going to accept this because you've got promises over this young girl's life and we're going to start to declare healing. And there were all of these people, and I wish I could put a whole bunch of other photographs up. They had 24-hour prayer meetings behind them. And the reason why I put this photograph up, they had declarations of this young girl's healing, of her brain, of her motor, of that she could dance one day. So from impending death to a place of, okay, we're going to have a child who's not going to be able to look after herself, to a few days ago, there she is standing now, the doctors are saying, what an absolute miracle. So if you're a modernist, <laughs> what is that? But, but let's bring it back down to us. What are we declaring over our lives? I, I know of the most horrific circumstances that some of you face. Whether it be illnesses, businesses failing, lack of economic resources, broken relationships, whatever the case is, God has spoken promises over us, and we come in and we say amen to that yes. And if we're standing back and going, oh, God, you're not for me. And I know of people, I know people that are close to us who have gone, you know what, this Christian thing, my business isn't working, this isn't working, ah, God isn't real. 
And yet he has a family who have demonstrated to the, the, the church globally that through community, 24-hour prayer, her friends were there 24 hours praying for her, that within two weeks, three weeks, she's standing there like that. And the doctors are going, what? What? So if God can do that there, what do you think he can do for us? What do you think he can do for you? The start as a community, the start to declare the promises of God over us, even though they may have been shadowed. And they might have kind of gone like the, the moon or the sun goes behind the mountains. Guess what? It's going to come up one day. And maybe God's delaying, but he's in the delay. It frustrates me. But he is. Won't you stand, please? So what I want to do, I want to go back into a time of worship. And I want God to minister to us, especially those who are struggling. Because sometimes what we need is we need friends to carry us up onto the roof, scratch open the rooftop, and lower us down before Jesus. So if you're saying, Gary, I hear you, but I just <laughs> help me in my unbelief, I don't know. I just can't see past what I'm seeing. I'd love you to come forward for no other reason than you're saying, God, as much as I'm struggling, I'm in a community, I'm, in a sense, I'm lying in a bed with my skull crashed in, but God, I know that you've got a community around me that I can step into right now but more than that, I can step into your presence and say, God, I'm in your hands. That no matter what the outcome is, even if it may be death, I close my eyes and I see you. But Lord, I want to step into it and I want to declare the promises that you've spoken over my life. Because as I continually declare those things, I believe God meets us at that place and brings about. And you know what? When we do that, we give the possibility for God to move. But when we stand back and we say, oh, God, you this, God, you this, you're not a good God. No, no, we've got the perfect father. He is a good, good father, and we are loved by him.